Hey, pals, so you want to take the big listen with you? Well, guess what? You can with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Election essentials, got it. Local stories, check. How about your favorite podcasts? They've got them all. NPR One is ready to make driving, working, or shoeing your horse that much better. Find NPR One in your app store today. Sam Sanders had never covered a presidential campaign until this year, when the NPR election unit tapped him to follow a long-shot candidate from Vermont. Bernie. (laughs) And before I know it, like, Bernie is this thing. I'm with this man all over the country. My last name is Sanders. His last name is Sanders. So I have to sock out no relation. Sam Sanders, no relation. NPR News, Culver City. How many states have you been to? I don't count. Um... They did not send me to Hawaii when Bernie went there. That's BS. They did not send me to What's the Vatican when Bernie went there. What's wrong with What is them? wrong with y'all? Um, but I don't think I've been to either of the Dakotas yet. Um, I've done Florida a few times. I've done California a lot of times. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of states. I'm Lauren Ober, and from WAMU and NPR, this is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of, and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. And on this week's show, hold on to your ballots, kids, because it's The Big Listen election extravaganza. This presidential race, I think we can all agree, has been a doozy. Email scandals and groping allegations and the Russians supposedly rigging the election. The talking heads on cable news aren't exactly talking these days. All right, we'll Will be you right. please stop saying that word? My daughter is listening. Yeah, you know what, you know what, Scotty? Don't tell me you're offended when I say but you're not offended when Donald Trump says I'm not running for president. He is. But if there is one positive that has come out of this whole waking nightmare, it is the sheer volume of political podcasts that have exploded on the scene. There's the Trump cast. The announcement looks like a highly partisan October surprise. The run-up. It's like Chekhov says, when a gun appears in the first act, you're going to see it in the third act, you know? And that's the way Anthony Weiner has sort of been throughout. Keeping it 1600. It's amazing. It's like the, the last gasp scene in a horror movie where the shark jumps out of the water and kills one final person. 538 elections. Clinton's gone from a seven-point lead to a four-point lead in a couple of weeks, right? The weeds. Hillary Clinton's vase isn't as vocal. They're like not out there on Facebook, like, you know, shouting down, Trump supporters shouting down. Off message. It's off message podcast. The scrum. It's a podcast for you. Whistle stop. Hello and welcome to Whistle the Stop. The Axe Files. Your host, David Axelrod. Must I go on? Please do not make me. Okay, fine. There's also the NPR Politics Podcast. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Which our pal Sam Sanders co hosts. We're going to hear more from Sam later in the show about life on the campaign trail. But first, we're going to take a look at a few of the more unique shows out there trying to make sense of all of this noise. Now, at first blush, you might think a podcast about polling research would be about as interesting as watching a herd of turtles. And you would be forgiven for thinking that because you've probably never listened to The Pollsters. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson with Echelon Insights. And Margie O'Mara is a Democratic strategist and big boss lady at a fancy polling firm in D.C. 
Also, she has amazing freckles, which you can't see on the radio. Too bad for you. Kristen Soltis Anderson is a Republican pollster and co-founder of a political research firm in Virginia. You may have seen her wearing fake eyelashes recently on Fox News, where she is a frequent commentator. Um, I have fake eyelashes on right now because I came from going on Fox News. They have put fake eyelashes on me, and I haven't taken them off yet because I haven't been home yet. And I'm worried if I take them off here, I'm going to, like, take out my real eyelashes. But Margie yeah. is like, no, they're pretty serious. Ridiculous. They're pretty serious. They're really serious about the lashes. I have tarantulas on my face. Yeah. They're, they're... Margie Amaro and Kristen Soltis Anderson, hosts of the podcast, The Pollsters. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. First, we got we to gotta start with some definitions. Like, what the hell is a pollster? Well, that's a good question, right? So a pollster is somebody who surveys or measures public opinion through quantitative work like surveys or through qualitative work like focus groups. These days, there are so many polls covering politics that what a lot of people think of as a pollster is a media outlet doing a poll, but there's so much else. There's polling for candidates that nobody ever sees that work publicly. There's polling for brands. There's polling for uh, stores, for major corporations. I mean, there's polling going on all the time. When I first got a job in polling and told my mom, I'm going to be a pollster, her one of her first questions was, are you going to be one of the people calling people on the phone like during dinner time I'm like no but I will be paying people to do that like we that that is I'll be beh- the, the guy behind the guy so to speak and I once went to a party where I said I'm a pollster and the woman said that is so exciting I've always wanted to go into that I said really and she, I said are you good with math and she said no why would I need to be good at math and it turns out she was thinking I said a pollster and that was what she was a, really excited a, a pollsterer like and somebody pollster- who would put fabric on chairs <laughs> Right. And she was not interested in being a pollster. <laughs> but also you would need math to be an upholsterer too. Right. Yeah, we didn't get that far. That was kind of the end of our friendship. <laughs> but see, okay, you guys just said that there are polls for everything. Why have I never been polled? on anything. Why doesn't anyone want to know my opinion on things? So, well, first of all, do you have a landline telephone? No. Ah, so there's clue number one Ooh, in this mystery but, I mean, of why you have not been called. Well, no, but that is a that is a valid point. Something that keeps coming up is that, like, how do you even reach, you know, people who are, like, under... Like, my mom doesn't even have a landline anymore, and she's almost 70. Oh, yeah, lots of people have cut the landline. So now, I mean... Well, people will do surveys on cell phones, but for a whole host of regulatory reasons and other reasons, it's just really expensive and hard to do. And I never Plus, pick up my phone. Yeah, do you ever pick up when you see a number nope. that you don't know? So, so these are the problems that we're facing. And then there's online polling, which is getting much, much, much better. But even there, it's still, you know, it's not as though you just in the course of browsing around the internet are going to stumble upon you know, CBS's big poll that's determining if they think Trump is up over Hillary. So it's it's the, the polling world is going through a huge sort of reinvention right now to adapt to all of this change. Do you guys wake up in the middle of the night, like in cold sweats with just poll numbers swirling around your head? Because there's so many polls. I mean, there are just so many people putting out polls about so many different things like is Donald Trump worse than lice? So our first, our poll of the week, PPP, as you, as folks know, they're so good at this. Like they are class A troll poll. Yeah. I mean, they do this. <laughs> they just know what we want before we want it. And here's what we all want, America. We want a poll knowing is Donald Trump more or less popular than lice, hemorrhoids, 
hipsters, <laughs> the DMV, traffic jams, uh, and of course, Nickelback. And it turns out Trump is less popular than, you know, not just the rest of the presidential candidate field, but then all of these folks, basically, other than hemorrhoids and cockroaches. Those are the only places where Trump is more, or oh, the only matchups where Trump is more popular. He is less popular than lice. Less popular than jury duty. Hey. That's right. It's Kristen. <laughs> Kristen can attest I got to. out of jury duty because of Donald Trump. It comes full circle. Less popular than hipsters. <laughs> less popular than all these things. Root canals even. I mean, how many people even get root canals? Anyway, so all of these things are more popular than Trump. So I guess that's not a surprise. There's there's Novocaine for a root canal. There's no Novocaine for this election. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, there are those on one end of the spectrum, but then, you know, really serious ones on the other. Do you just, like, how do you keep track of all of the numbers? Well, part of it is we do a show once a week where we have to <laughs> we force ourselves to sift through everything. But the other thing is that nowadays poll averages, I think, are really important. We at, at my firm's office, we just yesterday ordered a poster. You know those, like, keep calm and carry on posters? It says keep calm and average. Polls. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen those. <laughs> Keep calm and average polls. That the idea is that you know you've got 15 people out there polling the horse race right now, and they all come to this question with a different set of assumptions. If you merge them all together, if you average them, it's it's like making a safer bet. When you guys are sitting eating breakfast in the morning, do you ever think like, God, I am a nerd. Like, I'm just so nerdy. Like, I can't believe I turned into like this person who is, I mean, because what you guys were just saying was like, it's like a little wonky, right? This is probably the least nerdy thing that I do <laughs> with my day. Like, confessions. So I was on CNN last night at like midnight, and I had to sit in the green room and kill time, and I was playing Civilization Four. In oh, the green room. Like, okay, there are just... there are sins way worse <laughs> than polling in my life. I mean, but you look like such a nice lady. <laughs> it's just to, the breakdown. It's just down the those TV ban- makeup they put on me. That's right. It's We're trying to break down those ba- barriers. <laughs> the fake eyelashes. That's right. Nerds um, come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But, <laughs> but Which is great. I think it's important to dispel myths. Um, one thing that that I like about your show is that you're not just looking at political polls. People are polling in all kinds of areas, pop culture especially. Can you guys talk about some of your your favorite pop culture polls? Nerd Crimes Volume 2. I remember <laughs> loving the episode when we talked about polling on Star Wars. I'm so- Margie, I am so excited for this. No, I'm excited about We had a Star Wars party <laughs> last night for everybody who was, you know, old enough to watch Star Wars, which was not Beckett, was not my son. So I was in like the four-year-old, four-year-old and baby room. I was the monitor of the four-year-old and the baby room. So I didn't watch the old Star Wars, but we are geared up in our house to watch Star Wars. Well, the, uh, this polling data is a little old. Normally we like to cite either very fresh data or really old data. This does not fall in either category. This is a Survey Monkey study from summer of 2014, but it was done in sort of the lead up, the year leading up to this big event. And it was trying to get public opinion on the various Star Wars characters. But so uh, within this poll, they did a fave unfave, like you would do for a political candidate, but of all the Star Wars characters. Um, The best fave unfaves go to Luke Skywalker at 93% favorable, Han Solo at 92% favorable, Princess Leia at 91, and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda also coming in at 91%. Favorable. Who are the 2% of people that are unfavorable to R2-D2, by the way? 
people, you always get know. 2% of people in any poll Trolls. that answer something weird. Trolls. And last but not least, they ask the question. Uh, the reason I remember this is I just did, there's a, a podcast all about folks who work in politics and like Star Wars called like Beltway Banthas. And they like brought what? all of this polling data and were like, let's analyze this together. So Sorry. there is, Sorry. yes, there's polling about what Star Wars character people have loved. <laughs> the intersection of that. Polling never takes a holiday. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even deal that that, that exists. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hello, Space Cadets, and welcome to Beltway Banthas. And we are thrilled and honored to have with us today Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen what do we average Americans need to keep in mind as more and more of these polls come out? No single poll is gospel. Don't panic. Keep calm and average polls. Yeah, I mean, it, no poll is so sensitive that it's a reaction to just a news hit or a tweet from the day before. So they're really reflecting average trends and and maybe something really big has a little bit of a bounce in the polls. Um, so don't panic. Whatever side you're on, don't panic. <laughs> Margie Omero and Kristen Soltis Anderson are the power duo behind the podcast, The Pollsters. You can find out more about their show at biglisten.org. Well, we're going to take an ever so tiny break right now. But when we come back, we're going to try to laugh this whole election cycle off with the host of the comedy podcast, Fake the Nation. So I immediately started reporting Muslims on Twitter. Um, some of them binge watch too much television and they're hogging up the internet, which is like terrorism in its own right. That's coming up in a hot second here on The Big Listen. Stick around. This is NPR. Hey pals, thanks for listening to The Big Listen. So I just bought a new car. And I'm hoping it doesn't fall apart anytime soon. But if it does, I know that the car talk guys, click and clack the Tappet Brothers, have me covered with advice, tips, troubleshooting, maybe occasionally even an answer or two to car questions. You know them, you love them. So find Car Talk now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Hey, this is Camille Storch from Philomath, Oregon, and the podcast I'm loving lately is The Election Profit Makers. It's a podcast about making money on the 2016 presidential election. Supposedly, the show is about gambling on the election. I said, David, you need to get involved in this website. You are competing against other traders, and there is a lot of smart money out there but there is a lot of dumb money as well. Uh, but really, it's kind of about the host secret high school band and all sorts of quirky, weird, uh, non-political themes. Um, also, Starly Kine is the executive producer, and she shows up from time to time, and I just really miss hearing Starly on the radio. So, yeah, election profit makers, check it out. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know what podcasts are keeping you politically savvy in 2016. Leave me a message on the certified pod line. The number is 202-885-POD1. If you're a Republican, Democrat, or member of the Rent is Too Damn High party, I don't care. Just give me a call.
So if you are a late night comedian and you are absolutely loving this election cycle. As is her style, Hillary is overprepared with one of her patented lukewarm zingers. The kind of plan that Donald has put forth would be trickle down economics all over again. I call it trumped up trickle down. <laughs> Nothing like watching Hillary land a joke Sully style. There is no shortage of jokes to be made about any of the candidates. They are like gifts that keep on giving. And that's a good thing for Nagin Farsad. Nagin is the host of Fake the Nation. Fake the Nation, episode 12. A podcast sort of like Face the Nation, only with 100% more jokes and 100% fewer actual politicians. Hello, hello. I'm Nagin Farsad, and this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and we kick the American electoral system right in the crotch. Nagin Farsad, host of Fake the Nation, welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so this should not be any news to you, but you are an Iranian-American Muslim woman. Is that correct? <laughs> Wait a second. What? <laughs> yes. Okay, right. I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective as a comedian, as a, as a very up-on-the-news kind of person, like, how do you respond um, to all of this anti-Muslim wackadoodleness? I mean, so I, first off, I have a few outlets. I mean, one of them is Fake the Nation that you mentioned. Um, we, I mean, I, I, I'll mention uh, ridiculousness in Muslim stuff um, on the show. You know, there's so much out there right now, like Donald Trump, you know, he started off the year talking about like a ban, banning Muslims or putting Muslims on a registry. Ted Cruz was talking about patrolling Muslim neighborhoods. So that rhetoric is sort of all over the place. Like one of the things I like I did um, in response to the Muslim ban was I, I conducted what I called a bacon test with MoveOn.org. <laughs> we went out into the streets of New York City and I had a cold pile of bacon. And I would say, ask people, are you Muslim? And they would say no. And I would say, prove it. And then they would have to eat from the cold pile of bacon to prove that they were Muslim. And then if they didn't eat uh, the bacon, then they would have to sign a Muslim registry, which looked a lot like a bridal registry. Um, had a, like, flowery writing on it and stuff like that. And did, so, it come with, did the registry come with, like, um, any presents, like any crate and barrel stuff? It just or? came with, like, a year-long supply of uh, surveillance. So you, <laughs> so you definitely got that um, for signing the registry. But I, you know, and of course some people were like, oh, like, I'm Jewish, so I don't eat pork anyway, but, like, I'm not Muslim. And I was like, but it... With the bacon test, you're Muslim. This is how I uh, I deal with uh, with the news of Muslims in the election cycle. Why add your voice to the mix if you know? I mean, you're not the first politics show, but tell me what you guys bring that's special. Well, I mean. I'm not a journalist, <laughs> so I'm a comedian, <laughs> and I think what we bring to the table that's kind of different is that we're a bunch of comedians. We don't have talking points. We don't have a boss. Like, nobody nobody cares what we say, you know, and so we get to sort of say what it is that we actually think. <laughs> Debate number two, <laughs> or what I call the haunted house where Trump hovered like an awkward yet threatening apparition, somehow always within crotch-grabbing distance of Hillary Clinton. Um, ratings for the second debate actually dropped by 20%, but fear in our hearts rose by 200%, so I feel like that kind of evened out. Good point. Um, what were your overall thoughts on the debate? I was I was physically uncomfortable. I mean, I had to back away. I had to... I, 
I do this during horror movies. I watch through my kitchen. There's like a window going into the living room. And I watched through it because his hovering and aggressiveness was, I could feel it through the television. So what is your particular interest in politics? Well, it's funny, actually. You know uh, you know me as a comedian uh, and an author and a filmmaker. However, I started <laughs> out my life, <laughs> what I actually started out as was a policy advisor for the city of New York because, like most comedians, I have a master's degree in African-American studies and I have another one in public policy. So I have two master's degrees, which I... Do not use. Ooh, and uh, I always wanted to go into politics. My whole goal was to be the, you know, the first actual real Muslim president of the United States because um, Obama, <laughs> like, you know, unfortunately, he is not Muslim, <laughs> even though a lot of people think he is Muslim. Of course, I would say that. So who knows? He could still really be Muslim. Um, I'm going to keep a secret. Anyways, uh Point is, I was really into politics. I, I interned for Charlie Rangel. I interned for Hillary Clinton, uh, truth be told. I interned Come for on. C-SPAN, <laughs> which is a rollicking fun time wow. um, uh, of a network. Uh, so <laughs> as you can imagine, people were just kind of like, you know, doing uh, coke off their desks at C-SPAN. <laughs> and so I have this kind of history with politics. And I went into comedy, but like, you know, I've never dropped the a the desire to ha be in engaged in social change, um, and b the desire to talk smack about the American electoral system. Yeah. Let's get back into it with our next topic, guys. Trump, he's just getting Trumpier and mm. Trumpier. Uh, at a campaign rally this week, Trump unveiled his new plan to deal with immigrants coming into this country. And here's a clip. The time is overdue to develop a new screening test for the threats we face today. I call it extreme vetting. I call it extreme, extreme vetting. The program is called Extreme Vetting. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday is extreme. 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 Vetting. 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 Come to the Passaic Amphitheater, theater, theater, theater. Watch Muslims get vetted, vetted, vetted. <laughs> and funny car races. All the class of a Trump rally, all the noise of a Trump rally. You're gonna skydive, you're gonna go base jumping, you'll parkour while hammer swinging, all while reciting passages from Ayn Rand and being quizzed on the, the art of the deal. deal. It's barely legal and it is extreme. Extreme. Guys, I love that extreme betting. <laughs> yeah. I watch that. I mean, we have, we have. Uh, uh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a lot like a monster truck rally, yeah. but for immigrants. Extreme betting. <laughs> I'm gonna throw a little bit from from my industry, from the world of comics, in on this. Generally, when extreme is added as the adjective to the title of something, that's like the last thing before it gets canceled. Like that's. <laughs> That's like, like normally that's when like how do we how do we rebrand this? Let's say it's extreme. Oh yeah, kids love extreme, do they? I guess. So that's and then right like six months later it's gone forever. That's right before they add the baby. Like yeah. oh, let's do the yeah. baby. Extreme, oh, that's when a baby comes then, into the show. Yeah. Right. And extreme betting. So extreme this is, is yeah, right so the it. extreme is when you your yeah. your campaign has jumped the shark. Uh and then the funny thing is like this is like the Muslim ban because it's sort of like, what sort of extreme vetting, tell yeah. me, would you be possibly doing that would be remotely effective? Like, are you gonna be like, oh, do you wanna institute Sharia law? And the respondent would say, no. Do you like hummus? No. Welcome to the United States. Yeah. It's like that's, I mean, what? I'd be what screwed. Else? I love both of those things. <laughs> and I'm not remotely Muslim. I love huh. the whole, the, the Muslim ban to me was hilarious because Trump said, they asked Trump, how would you know if somebody's Muslim? And he said, well, just ask them. Yeah. Which is 
foolproof. Um, <laughs> if you ask three times, they have to tell the, the guys truth. Nice, That's like, the like, rules. Like, like, what is your religion? Me, my friend, I'm an Episcopalian. <laughs> it's like, no, really? No, I'm a Buddhist. Prove it. Buddha Akbar. I'm not kidding. Buddha Akbar. But this extreme venue, let's be honest, I love I wrote an article Daily Beast about it. I think politics and policy in particular was such a big part of my life for such a long time. You know, it's it's been hard to just kind of like not have it be a regular part of my life, which I think is why a lot of my work has this this kind of like social justice bent to it, mm-hmm. which is why I call myself a social justice comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I was going to ask you about that, but then I was like, well, maybe it's kind of obvious, but maybe it's not obvious what a social justice comedian is. Well, to uh, to define, I'll say that um, a social justice comedian is not necessarily doing any material about politics. They're doing it about justice, right? And it's not partisan um, because issues of justice shouldn't be partisan. You know, there's only really one right way, and that is the the just way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that you know, social justice comedy is is um, funny, but it's sneaky. So you could mm-hmm. be hearing a joke that's ostensibly about poop, um, but you're really hearing something that's about, you know, uh, income inequality. Uh, and so, you know, the, the old income inequality poop nexus. Those kill. Those kill every time. <laughs> you know, one thing that I think that you guys accomplish on your show is that you are getting a lot of different voices. I mean, it's it's I guess it's like it's just part of your world. Like, you're a woman, you're a Muslim, you're a comedian, you're educated, you're blah, blah, blah. You're bringing all of these things, these experiences to um, to the show that we don't hear from a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that's, you know, one of my personal goals is a that you know, they're here, here we are with a podcast that's being run by an Iranian American Muslim lady. And that shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, and, and, and also I have, there are shows like, for example, you know, where we have a live show with Asif Manvi and Aparna Nancharla, and they're both brown people. Uh, mm-hmm. Asif is Muslim. So we're going to have a two Muslims on oh one panel boy. show. And oh again, boy. it's like, <laughs> security it's like, is heightened at that show. You've seen them on HBO's The Brink. You've seen them in umpteen movies. And of course, as correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, and he is also one of the other most wonderful comics in New York. Please welcome to the stage, Asif Malvi. But I don't think that that's weird. These are just the people that I see on the circuit. These are the people that I think are funny. It ends up sort of being something I do because it's Tuesday, not because it's like I'm trying to do it. That's just how I see the world. So one uh, part of, or one episode that you guys said you touched on this idea that you want your racists to be upfront about their racism because yeah. then you know um, who you can avoid. Can you talk about that episode a little bit or that, you know, that bit in that episode? Yeah, I mean, I in general, you know, I, I made this movie called The Muslims Are Coming where I, I basically rounded up a bunch of Muslim American comedians in a nonviolent way. And we went <laughs> around the country um, to places like Arizona and, and Tennessee and Mississippi. And we did these shows and we called them The Muslims Are Coming. Can I invite you to a stand-up comedy show? It's absolutely free. It's tonight at 8 o'clock. It's called The Muslims Are Coming. There's a bunch of Muslims on stage, but they're hilarious. responsibility for things they could have never done. Did you know the eclipse? We did it for Allah. 
one of the most interesting, so we would do these shows and then we would also do these street actions where we would kind of like um, meet people in the middle of their workday, like, you know, setting up an Ask a Muslim booth in the middle of a town square. One of the most courageous things I think that I saw on that tour was people who are willing to ask me questions like, you know, if you're, uh, why do you call yourself Iranian American? Why can't you just call yourself American American? Now that's the kind of question that I think a lot, you know, that in, in some PC circles would be seen as inappropriate and oh my God, how racist. And to me, I'm like, no, that's a legitimate question because they don't know that many Iranian Americans. They don't know what it's like to be in my shoes, to have grown up as an Iranian American, to speak multiple other languages other than English because I'm an Iranian American and to have grown up with this other religion, Islam, um, and, and, and to what it's like for someone to say to me, well, why don't you just say you're American American? Mm-hmm. Why can't, why do you have to say you're Iranian American? So like I, so for me to hear that question, I think that's important. It's important for people to be open. Um, and I, I love it when I know where the racists are, what they're thinking, because then we, it's, there's no questions there. Now I know like, okay, now I know what the work is that I have to do, right, you know? Right, right, Do you think that the show is a way for you to, um, is it sort of like therapy for you um, and the other comedians? Do you feel like you're you're in like a little group therapy session when you <laughs> when you have uh, when you when you tape your episodes? It's funny because you know, we ju- we just taped an episode, and as we were wrapping up, a uh, one of the comedians said, Christian Finnegan, um, he said, "God, I you know this was great. I I I got, watch the news. I get to gnash my teeth at the news. Sometimes I'll write a joke." that's like a well-honed, tight joke, but I never get to talk about the news. And I think that's, um, it is a bit of therapy for me because it's like, oh, I just want to vomit out all these feelings I have about <laughs> what's happening. Um, and, the, and the show like gives us a chance to do that and hopefully by extension gives the audience a chance to vomit along with us. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> that's what, that's Ooh. our new tagline, fake the nation, vomit along with us. Nagin Farsad is the host of Fake the Nation from Earwolf. To get more info about the show, hit up our website, biglisten.org. It has all the details you could ever want. This year, it pays to have a sense of humor about things. Our pal Sam Sanders from the NPR Politics Podcast knows this all too well. You know, there was a point, I think, in August... I was just like, oh my God, I can't do this. <laughs> and there were a few days I was just sad. You had a dropout moment. I had a dropout moment. But lucky for us, he didn't drop out. He stuck with it. Just like you're going to stick with us when we take a quick break. Like right now. But when we come back, we're going to chat with a couple of political pros who know a thing or two about losing. Don't you want to know, like, what was in the back of his mind as he kept being called low energy? Like, did he want to <laughs> I mean, just, like, Rip Trump's throat, you know, like, or God just... damn it. That's coming up in a GIF here on The Big Listen. This is NPR. Hey, Big Listen. I'm Brendan from Portland, Oregon. 
I can't just talk about one, so here it goes. 538 Elections does a deep dive into polls. It's not the world's safest four or five point lead. Keeping It 1600 is hosted by former Democratic staffers with great banter and interviews. The reporting <laughs> is so confusing, right? Like MSNBC's <laughs> Rachel Maddow isn't a podcast, but the audio from the TV show. You may also remember that North Carolina is home to something called the Voter Integrity Project. NPR Politics Podcast covers a good variety of topics with good pace and rapport between hosts. <laughs> I think uh, we need to get the very important news that according to pictures on Twitter, Sam Sanders was a very convincing Ron Elving for Halloween. Actually, And lastly, a plug for OPB Politics Now. Well, here it is, a week from Election Day. You've got your Oregon ballot. <laughs> I hope everyone is as excited to vote as I am. Thanks for the great show. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know what podcasts are getting you through this election season. So dial up the pod line and leave a message after the beep. The number is 202-885-POD1. I want to hear your mellifluous voices. Now, there are a lot of jobs I thought would be fun. Segway tour guide, panda keeper at the zoo, ice cream tester, etc., etc. One job I've never thought would be fun? Being president of the United States of America. Honestly, I cannot think of anything worse. But this year, 19, 19 major party candidates thought being president sounded pretty great. The problem with 19 candidates, 21 if you count Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, is that you end up with a whole lot of losers. And may God always bless and strengthen this great nation, the United States of America. Thank Florida you. Senator Marco Rubio speaking in Miami, suspending his campaign after... And on November 9th, there will be one more also ran to add to the list. And that means another potential guest for the podcast Candidate Confessional, a show all about political losers. It's hosted by Sam Stein and Jason Cherkis of the Huffington Post. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. Okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. I keep calling your show not confessional. Candidate Confidential. That's what I keep calling it. Everyone calls it Candidate Confidential. I know, it's not that. Jason and Sam of Candidate Confidential. (laughs) Confessional. (laughs) Screws up. So So, welcome to the big listen. Um, So I want to know how you came up with the idea to do a podcast about political losers. You know, I I was looking for a way to cover the election, and I I don't think I have any access or any hope of getting interviews with winners. (laughs) Uh, You know, like Hillary Clinton. I don't even know her publicist's email address or or anything like that. And so I just thought, like, how am I going to, you know, have something to say or something to report on? And I just thought, like, well, what if we just interviewed losers? Because, like, they have, <laughs> they don't have anything to do. They're not doing anything. And I also, I thought it would be a good way to, to learn about the process in a way that maybe was more off the cuff and more authentic than, 
I think we've steered away from people we thought might run again just because they, they would inherently be more guarded. I think we, we have had debates about people that have run and, and whether they actually had a real chance. And we wanted to interview people we thought you know, had a chance. They weren't just running as an outsider, yeah. complete. They weren't message. kooks. Yes. Yeah. They were, right, they were people who had already gained some traction in whatever race they were trying to run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the in the time that you've been doing the podcast, what have you figured out the losers tell us about politics? Well, universally, I feel like what they've told us is that politics can be truly awfully miserable like you a lot of them just spend so much time begging for money that it's almost like it's it's uncomfortable in some respects and and then there's been a few where they've talked about the the uh the toll it's taken on on their families in a way that i guess i didn't appreciate at first so like wendy davis who we interviewed who ran for governor of texas i mean she had her bio completely picked apart at what point did you start to realize that your skin had grown tougher and thicker? It happened slowly over time. <laughs> um, I went through several election contests in my city council role, and that was really good training ground for that uh, skin thickening. And then my first Senate race was really, really tough and thickened it quite a bit. And then my experience as a woman in the Texas Senate, um, I was only, I think, the 12th or 13th woman ever elected in the entire history of the Texas Senate. It is truly the definition of the good old boys club. And you've got to learn how to be pretty tough to fight your way there and to make sure that your voices and your constituents' voices are heard. Do you read clubs about yourself? Be honest. I did, but I stopped. You Google I stopped. Yourself? No, 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 no. I don't even read. I don't put my name into Twitter. I, I don't do any of that anymore because you can find yourself in the negative echo chamber and it's a dangerous place to yeah. be. One of the episodes you did that I particularly liked was with Michelle Bachman, who I found myself surprised yeah. that I liked it so much because of how I think... I had read her in the media, what I thought. I mean, I I wrote her off. I came away from that interview having a lot of respect for her because I was like, man, this lady, this lady has a stomach of steel. Give us a day in the life on the campaign trail early on for you. I would say that, you know, a a normal wake-up time would be 4, 4 4.30 in the morning. That's brutal. It's brutal, uh, considering the fact that I probably went to sleep about midnight. Um, if I ever had any thoughts about running for office, which I never had, <laughs> they they got shot right out the window there. What was it, yeah. four outfit changes in the course yeah. of a day, which yeah. a, man, a man would never have to do because you could just no. wear the same suit. You wear yeah. the same suit, right, exactly, and no one is scrutinizing your red tie. Yeah, but, you know, the story that really killed me with the Bachman one was about the, the Newsweek photographer yeah. where this guy, for the listeners, this guy essentially took a bunch of shots for the cover. They all looked good. And then the congresswoman tells it, the former congresswoman. I was just about to leave, and the photographer said, you know, I didn't get my test shot of you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I need to have a test shot to send my editor. Mm. And uh, I said, okay. So What's a test shot? Do you know? Well, this is what he told me to do. Okay. So so there was this closet kind of set up, and it was like an aluminum ladder. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, and, and it was a really stark blue background, solid blue background, kind of an obnoxious blue background. And he said, I want you just to sit on the bottom rung of this ladder, and I'm going to, uh, you know, do this test shot. And I said, 
it was very uncomfortable because I had to kind of squat down on this ladder. And I said, I don't even know why we're doing this. You've got your shots. And he said, well, I have to have the test shot. So then the photographer um, hit a strobe light Mm -hmm. and snapped with the strobe light so that my eyes uh, flared open as as they would in response to a, a huge, bright strobe light. And uh, I said, what was that about? He said, it's, it's just a test shot. Don't worry. It's, you know, it's nothing. I said, you're not going to use that, are you? And he said, oh, no, no, no. This is just something I have to give to my editor. Well, then, as it turned out, um, none of these lovely shots were used. The only thing they did is the one where I looked like the Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> with my eyes wide open, and that was on the cover. And what was hilarious is... Wait, that- before, before we get there, when did you find out that they were going to make it the cover? Well, not, not until, until it was it came issued. Out? Not until um, it was out, yeah. Um, so. What really surprised you about what the candidates had to say about what campaigning was like? Did anything pop out at you that you were like, oh, I had no idea. I never would have thought of that. Well, the first episode for me was really informative, and that was the one we did on Howard Dean's 2004 run. Mm-hmm. Uh and that was because, you know, the Dean scream, the Dean scream. Yeah. And that was what was informative was there's this popular conception about how the campaign ended. Right. Which is, oh, he you know, finished third in Iowa. He had this terrible, terrible scream and everything <laughs> ended. But he 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 told us that, uh, you know, he sort of felt the wheels coming off three weeks earlier. And I just thought to myself to have that type of self-awareness in that type of moment is actually quite incredible. If you think about it. Was there a moment when he thought it was slipping away? Yep. I can remember the moment. It was in Iowa. It was about three weeks before the end. And I all of a sudden realized that I was going from event to event with these enormous crowds. And it was like being the Grateful Dead. It was the same crowd. And I'd leave the stage. I'd rile them all up. They'd all go crazy. And at this point, I could have said, I'm having spaghetti for lunch. And they all would have gone, yeah! So, I mean, it was that crazy, right? And I'd get off the stage and we'd go do a little something or I'd have the downtime and get a sandwich or something. I'd go to the next rally and there'd be a huge crowd of a thousand people and they'd be the same people. But you'd say, I'm having a pork chop for lunch. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say that. But I, you know, I, when I saw that, I realized what was happening was this was not about ordinary Iowans. And once it's not about ordinary Iowans in the Iowa primary, you're in big trouble. And I knew I was in trouble. I thought Michael Steele was really fascinating. His this sort of internal conflict of being an African-American and a Republican. And he was sort of what was, it wasn't that surprising that he was sort of getting it from all sides, that that he was experiencing racism within his own party, you know, to talk a certain way. Were they trying to make you talk and act and be yes. more of a white Yes, candidate? yes. How so? What were they tell you? Well, they were just like, well, it wouldn't be like, you need to sound white. <laughs> but it would be like, well, you can't say that. When I was at the RNC, I actually had a member say to me, you know what your problem is? I was like, what? <laughs> I have many, but tell me. <laughs> you don't, you, you sound too black. Shut up. Hand to God. When I write the book, baby, trust me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what did you trust say to the me. guy? Wait, what did you say? It was a woman. Okay. We like, you have you, you noticed? And I, I just I looked at it and I was like, well, this is just what I am. <laughs> this is how we talk where I'm from. Jesus. I mean, Yes. You took this, off your gang colors. Yes, this is this is what this is what I have to deal with. I guess the one good thing about having 15, 17, however many candidates we started with all sort of doing some ridiculous thing at some yeah. point is that you have a huge collection of losers or future losers to choose from. Yes. And I I wonder um 
from the this most recent batch, who would each one of you most like to do an episode on? Oh, that's easy. Who are you going to say? I mean, I have to go with Jeb. Jeb, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had the most to gain, I mean, most to lose, and, and he was a substantial candidate who had put oh, a d- lot. And don't you want to know, like, what was in the back of his mind as he kept being called low energy? Like, did he want to I mean, just like rip Trump's throat? You know, like, or God just, damn it! <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think in reality, he, he, I mean, he, his response to that over time just was never very satisfying. Yeah, no, I think Jeb would be the best there. Yeah. Um, what have each of you learned about loserdom, uh, from doing the show? That all of the candidates are oddly likable and I, I am afraid that we're making them too likable. <laughs> like people have said to me, Man, I really like Newt Gingrich. I'm like, really? I mean or Bachman is another example yeah. where my mother in law is like, I'm afraid to listen to that one. What if I like her? You know, she's a Democrat and she's like, Oh my God, I don't know if she won't listen to it. <laughs> Michael Steele was another example. Like after the interview I'm like under my breath I'm like, I love this guy. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like I could vote for him, you know? Right. Like um, well, Jason and Sam, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and telling us about Candidate Confessional. You got it. It's been great chatting with you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Sam Stein and Jason Cherkis are the hosts of Candidate Confessional from the Huffington Post. If you want to hear more stories of failed political campaigns and the brilliant minds behind them, check out BigListen.org for all the info. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode and this election cycle. Woo! But before we let you go, it's time for Chartography. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. Now, if you were the 289th, ranked candidate in a presidential election, it wouldn't be that great. But in podcast land, 289 is a pretty respectable number. This week's 289. I kid you not, I am like Honest Abe right now, is the podcast with her, Hillary Clinton's official campaign podcast. So it's basically this amazing marketing tool for people who want like real personal like info about the candidate, Hillary Clinton. Hi, Hillary. Hi, Max. Like, hey, she's just a lady who's going to sit down with this dude and have a conversation about, like, what it's like to be a candidate. I heard a rumor that you don't use an alarm clock. No, that's not true. Ah. But the best part of all of the episodes is I learned Hillary Rodham Clinton is a huge podcast listener. Oh, yeah? Yes, I, I like podcasts. She listens to podcasts. Yeah, I can plug my earphones in, and I can be doing all other kinds of things. Cleaning or doing her hair. and like She doesn't do either of those. She's not doing that. But so the host, Max Linsky, asks her. What do you listen to? She said that she likes to listen to TED Talks, which to me seems maybe like she listens to the TED Radio Hour. I don't know. Um, but Hillary, I know you're listening right now. So we'd love to have you on the show. Get in touch. Have your people reach out to my people. And then we'll we'll take a ride down to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue if you get there. However, if you don't make it into the White House, um, we will meet you in the lobby of the, uh, the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> we, will, we, will, we will happily buy you a beer. No, but seriously, come on the show.
Now, I'm guessing you're not a dum-dum, and thus you know that you are listening to a bona fide grade A podcast. But did you know you can subscribe to the show for free? Well, you can at NPR One or iTunes or any fine purveyor of podcasts. So if you like what you're listening to, subscribe. And also, maybe bang out a little review for us. We would be so grateful. As always, we love listener feedback. Like us on Facebook or check us out on Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. Or send us some electronic mail at BigListen at WAMU.org. And if you trust the U.S. Postal Service, you can always drop a letter in the actual mail. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston. I, Lauren Ober, was performing my civic duty by voting. Special thanks to our VP of Black Ops, Beck Feldhouse Adams, and to my main man, Hans Anderson, for helping out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of Boss Lady Andy McDaniel and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a final thought from Mr. Sam Sanders, co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast, about the perils of campaign reporting, like the time he missed the Bernie bus and got stranded in an airport in New Hampshire. So they leave me at this commercial airport, and I'm running around asking any staff, like, can you give me a quiet room? And I'm like, I have to record myself right. in this quiet room in an airport. <laughs> the story makes it on time, thankfully. It airs. But now I'm just stuck at the airport. Right. Thankfully, Tamara Keith, who was on Clinton Detail, is stuck, too. Because <laughs> oh. she's fine. Oh so she God. waits for me. And she's like, you know what, Sam? It's fine. She calls Scott Detro, who was not too far from us, covering some other stuff. She's like, Scott, come get us. Um, we end up at some diner in New Hampshire where they serve buckets of bacon. While we're sitting there eating the bucket of bacon, like 25 pieces of bacon, I have my headphones on as I listen to my story run. It was the craziest 24 hours. Seriously, someone give this guy a raise or at least give him a vacation needs it. Well, till next time, keep listening and voting, America. This is NPR.